Well, after Tyler's reading of our scripture passage, I'm not sure we need a sermon this morning. Of course, we need a sermon this morning, but that is indeed how you're supposed to read the text of scripture. All right. Thank you, brother. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We'll conclude chapter 23 and get into chapter 24 in our study of the book of Luke this morning. Luke 23, we'll pick up in verse 50. I'll read the text and then pray that the Lord would give us grace and understanding it this morning. Luke chapter 23 and verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told them these, told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on it this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that as we come to it now, you would illuminate the text of Scripture for us, God. Please give us understanding of the text and its implication for our lives. Lord, we do, we do pray that you would help us to behold the Lord Jesus, the one who has conquered death, who has defeated sin, who has obtained eternal life for your elect. God, we pray that you would help us to see the truth of the Scriptures clearly, to receive it by faith. And Lord, we pray that you would make us holy through receiving your word. God, please sanctify us in the truth. Lord, your word is the truth. And I pray that you would keep me free from error as we now consider your word. 
And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Church, there are few other things more foundational to Christianity than the resurrection of Christ. And when I say a few, I mean like maybe two. We have, you know, creation ex nihilo, the virgin birth, and the resurrection. These things are essential. The resurrection topping them. And that's not just my opinion. We read just a few moments ago from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. What does he say there? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And we are of all people most to be pitied. So if you are here this morning and you're investigating what defines the Christian faith, what separates it from all the world religions, then you can glean much from this passage if you'll receive it today. Because the main point that we gather from this passage is, is this. We can have certainty that Jesus was truly dead, yet today He truly lives. Th- these are the divisions the, the of the text. The certainty of Jesus' death and the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. As we examine our our text this morning, we're we're going to consider the fact that that there have been those throughout history that have sought to cast doubt on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in considering these, we'll see that all these doubts are really without merit. So for the Christian, this text really should shore up our faith. And for those here that still remain in that stage of investigation, my my prayer this morning is that you would find the claims of Scripture to be the opposite of irrational, rather most probable. And to that end, we first consider what Luke has to say about the certainty of Jesus' death. Our text opens with the description of a man who sat on the Jewish high court that sentenced Jesus to death. And while this man isn't necessarily what this passage is all about, there's much to learn from this Joseph character that we see here. We're told that he sat on the high court of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. But rather than speaking about him in a condemning manner, Luke speaks about him in a commendable way. In verse 50, Luke plainly says that this Joseph of Arimathea was a good and righteous man. But one might say, well, hang on a minute. How can we say that someone who sat on this court that we've already established wrongly condemned Jesus? How can we say that he's considered good and righteous? Which is a good question. But it's one that Luke answers for us. In verse 51, it goes on to tell us that Joseph had not consented to their plan and action. Now, we know from other texts of Scripture that the whole council was in opposition to Jesus in his sham of a trial. And what seems to be an inconsistency in the biblical narrative can be resolved in a few ways easily. The most probable of these is that Joseph of Arimathea was absent from Jesus' trial. 
Not only are we told of his lack of consent to the death of Jesus, but Luke tells us why he would not consent to such treatment of Jesus. He says that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God, which is Luke's way of telling us in his gospel account, the the way that the kingdom is described in relation to Jesus throughout Luke. That's Luke's way of telling us that this man was a follower of Jesus. Granted, not all that we know about Joseph was was positive. John's testimony of him says that, that he was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. But with the the sentencing and subsequent death of Jesus, something shifted in Joseph. As happens at different times with people, his faith went into a higher gear at this point. He, He began to fear God rather than man, you see. We understand that from this activity that Luke describes of him in, in, in verse 52, we, we understand that his faith shifts into this higher gear. Verse 52 says that this man went to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus, which lets you know that a shift has taken place because one couldn't reasonably expect that this request made to Pilate would remain private. Perhaps his emboldening happened when God made his judgment visible through the various signs as Jesus neared his death on the cross. Perhaps his emboldening in this moment was in response to the suffering and death of Jesus coming about just as Jesus had foretold. Whatever the case, Joseph has been emboldened by the suffering and death of Christ. So much so that He abandoned all inhibitions of identifying himself with Jesus. He he determined that he could no longer be a secret follower of Christ. One devoted to Jesus privately, but publicly ashamed of him. And, And we should expect this growth from him. Because no follower of Jesus can claim that they follow Jesus privately, but be ashamed of him publicly. Not long term, anyway. After all, it was Jesus who said in Luke chapter 12, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So in this way, Joseph stands as a great example to us of the reality that followers of Christ cannot claim private affection, but public apathy. You say, well, you don't understand. You don't understand. I I can never be an open Christian in my workplace or in my family or in my school. That that would never fly. It it just doesn't work there. Really? You think it doesn't fly in your workplace? Joseph's workplace just murdered Jesus for what he stood for. (laughs) To say that Joseph might have had reason to be a little concerned with their response to his devotion is an understatement. 
They just took Jesus' life. What might they do to Joseph? Friend, are you in danger of losing your life for your identification with Jesus? Likely not. And even if you are, we must bear in mind the words of Jesus elsewhere when he declared, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So so in this way, friends, there is much for us to learn from this Joseph figure as we witness his spiritual maturity. Additionally, Joseph is not only commendable in his repentance of the fear of man, he's commendable for the great honor that he showed for the Lord Jesus in his death. It may not sound like a big deal that he took on the responsibility of burying Jesus, but it really does stand in striking contrast to the dishonor Jesus had endured from those determined to kill him. Having been granted his request for the body of Jesus, verse 53 says, Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was clear that Joseph was a man of great means. Graves cut from stone were extremely expensive. They were typically used to house several bodies. We know from Matthew's account here that Joseph had purchased this tomb for himself and probably for his family as well. Yet he determines that the Lord Jesus, even having borne such reproach as he did in his death, Joseph determines to place Jesus among those loved most dearly by him. You see, just as we are called to identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus in his death, Joseph is doing likewise. And this all takes place in order to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah spoke about the Lord Jesus several hundred years previous. In Isaiah 53 and verse 9, we're told that the coming one, we're told of the coming one rather, that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Joseph's honorable burial of Jesus was the direct fulfillment, you see, of this prophetic word. But as much as we may profit from considering the the spiritual development that that led Joseph to take this lead role in Jesus' burial, that, that, that isn't what we're chiefly to understand from this passage. Chiefly, we are to reckon not with the honorableness of his treatment in death, but the fact of his death. You see, each of the gospel writers makes it a point to comment on not only the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the handling of his burial. And they do so in order that it would be made clear to all that received their testimony that he was indeed dead. Because only in establishing the certainty of his death can they go on to extol the wonder of the resurrection. So as we receive Luke's testimony this morning, I'd like for us to consider some some theories that have been set forth in opposition to Jesus' death and resurrection. And allow the text of Scripture to expose the foolishness of these thoughts. Now you might say, well, 
But wait, if we allow the testimony of the disciples to dispel these notions, isn't that circular reasoning? To refute an objection by referring to the testimony that's being objected? And while I understand the impulse to ask such a question, the truth is that even serious secular scholarship doesn't refute the facts provided to us in the biblical account of Jesus' death. That's not so much true with his resurrection, but we'll deal with that in a bit. However, at this point, it's important to note that while there are objections to the death of Jesus that we should be prepared to deal with, they don't primarily arise from serious academic study. Additionally, just because we point to the biblical account, friends, of the burial and resurrection of Jesus does not mean that we're being illogical. It's not a notion that we should buy into. The accusation sometimes comes that if Christians believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, well, that's fine. But, but you must admit that you believe it by blind faith. And that's only partly true. We believe it by faith, for sure. But it's not a blind faith. The Scriptures call us to faith, but they do not call us to blind faith. In fact, 1 Peter in chapter 3 demands just the opposite of believers when we're told there to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that word defense that Peter uses there is the word from which we derive the term apologetics. That discipline devoted to the defense of the faith. So rather than blind faith... We're called to embrace a faith that is full of reason, brothers and sisters. And to that end, pointing to the testimony of Scripture is not unreasonable. Yes, we, we believe them to be divinely inspired, but, but that doesn't stand in opposition to the fact that it's reasonable to believe them. What one pastor has uh, done extensive work in this area. And if you're interested in his work, then I can share some more of those resources with you. But, but concerning the trustworthiness of the Bible, he provides a, a concise yet dense formula for articulating why one would trust the Bible to be true, particularly concerning these events of the death and resurrection of Christ. He, he gives us a, a, a dense but concise formula. Part of, part of that formula is as follows. He says, The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Again, that's layered, so let me say it again. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. That's, that's a, a layered statement, but it's, it's one that, when seriously considered, gives us great reason for trusting the validity of the Scriptures. So, so with that established, let's consider some of the opposition to the record that Luke has given to us here. In effort to disprove the deity of Christ, a couple of theories have been set forth over time that challenge the fact that Jesus ever died at all. The first of these is right for our contemplation as we look at verses 52 through 55. 
and that is the resuscitation theory, or as some call it, the swoon theory. And th- this idea comes, or excuse me, this, this idea claims that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. The proponents of this theory claim that Jesus was indeed nailed to the cross, that he endured real pain, that he suffered real blood loss, but rather than dying, Jesus merely fainted, and the disciples mistakenly buried him. But after a few hours, in the the coolness of the tomb, he arose and left the tomb. Now, the the problems with this are numerous. First of all, all, the, the scriptures tell us, and no serious historian refutes, that Joseph requested the body from Pilate. And Mark's account goes so far as to tell us that Pilate confirmed with the centurion that Jesus was, in fact, dead before handing the body over to Joseph. And that's significant, friends. These were professional executioners, well-trained in their craft. They were all too capable of drawing accurate conclusions about someone's death for this idea to be plausible. Also, if if a body had been as brutally injured as Jesus had and, and then left in a cold, damp tomb, it's being revived to full health instead of going into a state of decline doesn't shake off the need for a miracle. Not to mention, in order for this theory to work, Jesus would not only have to be revived, but made supernaturally strong to move the stone out of the way and then fight off the Roman guards that had been stationed there. So you can see that that theory is is nothing short of ridiculous. Another scheme which attempts to discredit the death and resurrection of Jesus that this portion of the passage demands that we address is that of the unknown tomb theory. Advocates of this perspective assert that Jesus did die, or excuse me, if, if Jesus did die, rather, that those who were crucified in that day were all thrown into a, a common pit, a, a mass grave. Thus, the exact place of his burial would have been unknown to the disciples. Therefore, the disciples never could have found an empty tomb. Clearly, though, that's not true. We've seen from the text already that not only did Pilate know who had the body of Jesus and likely where he was headed with it, but also verse 55 tells us that the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. These women were obviously connected to the disciples, as we see in the next chapter. And again, these these facts aren't refuted by even the most serious scholarship. Friends, Luke's point in his narration here is clear. And no evidence has been produced to the contrary. Jesus was truly dead. In order to bear the consequences of sin and identify fully with mankind, the eternal Son of God, in fulfillment of the prophetic words spoken about Him, died. And it's a rejection of serious historical study to claim otherwise. But 
as the passage progressive, we, progresses, we receive not only the testimony of Jesus' death, but more importantly, we come now to the testimony of His resurrection. And here Luke continues to give us testimony that should work to provide us with certainty. So we turn now to contemplate how the text provides us with the certainty of the resurrection. It's important to note that this is the point at which secular scholarship begins to diverge from the biblical claims. And not so much as it relates to the the, the brute facts recorded, but certainly concerning the interpretation of those facts. Yet as we've seen, and will continue to see, there's no reason to cede the ground of authority to that sort of skepticism. Verse 56 says that because the Sabbath was beginning, the women returned and prepared spices and ointments. And then on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But, says verse 1 of the next chapter, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And continuing on in verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. So we now are met with the testimony of an empty tomb and the angelic declaration of the resurrection of Jesus. And with this testimony, we also must consider further objections to Luke's narrative. One such objection is that the resurrection was was merely spiritual and not physical. There are even some so-called Christians who believe this. While reasons to this objection vary, it, it falls completely flat when held up to our text and when held up to the historical record. In every gospel writer's account, we find the testimony of a bodily resurrection. And here we see that Luke's account is in lockstep with the others. Verse 3 says that when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The angels then explain the reason why in verses 5 and 6. He has risen, they say. Now, the the secular scholarship doesn't agree with the angels' reason as to why the women found an empty tomb. But even the academic historians recognize that to this day, they are saddled with the problem of a missing body. And what the claim of a a spiritual resurrection does, if they lay that over the idea of a bodily resurrection, what what that claim does is it it simply over-spiritualizes this truth claim of our faith. And as believers, we must never allow anyone to over-spiritualize the truth claims of our faith. what, What I mean by that is that we must never allow anyone to mythologize the claims of Christianity so as to divorce them from space-time reality. 
The moment you cede that ground is the moment that the claims of the faith lose all relevance. That they become relegated to subjective rather than objective judgment, you see. One brother has put it this way. We need to see clearly that there can be positive theological implications of the resurrection only insofar as its historical reality is affirmed. In other words, brothers and sisters, the bodily resurrection of Christ is central to the faith and absolutely essential to our hope of eternal life. The rest of Luke's account provides us with what's necessary to deal with the last two mainstream objections to the resurrection. Those being the proposal that the disciples stole the body and then the hallucination theory. The first of these is obvious enough to understand. Critics say that instead of being resurrected, the reason that no one could find the body of Jesus is that the disciples stole it. And then the hallucination theory posits that all of Christ's post-resurrection appearances were just hallucinations. The individual appearances that he made and the group appearances that he made. Just, just hallucinations. There are several issues in, in the logic of both of these notions. First of all, the idea that the disciples had the boldness to steal the body of Jesus is contested by the biblical witness of their fearfulness. John 20 tells us that following the death of Jesus, they had locked themselves up in a hidden room together out of fear. And, and they would have either had to fight off the guards, which is unlikely, or they would have had to steal the body away while the guards slept which for a Roman guard merits a death sentence. Not to mention, if anyone had stolen the body, it wouldn't account for the manner in which the gospel writers record the burial clothes being laid. We're told in verse 12 that Peter saw the linen clothes by themselves. The sense the gospel writers give us is that these strips of cloth and the linen shroud lay in the tomb empty, but undisturbed. They weren't torn apart and strewn about like someone who was unwrapping a body. It's as though the body was transferred out of the burial clothes supernaturally. Now, to the hallucination theory, it, it's enough to lay both it and the stolen body theory to rest by the observation that neither the women nor the disciples were anticipating the resurrection. Luke makes this clear. Look there at verse 4 with me. When they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus, Luke says they were perplexed about this. And it wasn't until the angels reminded them about Jesus' teaching that they even conceived that such a possibility might be that He would be resurrected. Verses 6 and 7 we, we hear these angels say, Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? You can hear the tone of the angel. Remember? This is what's going on here. 
It was only then, verse 8 tells us, that they remembered his words. And it wasn't only the women. The men also were guilty of disbelief as well. To another degree, in fact. The apostles that were to lead the church, how did they respond to the testimony of the women when they come and tell them about the empty tomb? Look at verse 11. These words seem to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But, you may ask, what has their lack of faith in Jesus' resurrection to do with rebutting the, uh, these objections to the resurrection? Well, friends, in order to steal a body to fake a resurrection, one must believe that the resurrection validates Jesus' teaching. The, the disciples clearly had forgotten that Jesus foretold his resurrection. And according to the experts, those who experience hallucination are, are, are subject to a number of factors not true of the disciples. Chief among them being a willingness and propensity toward belief in the subject of hallucination. We see here, this is clearly not the case for those destined to lead Christ's church. They didn't believe even when they were told by people they trusted. So these theories can, with certainty, you see, be put to rest. And yet, the, the perplexity of the women and the disbelief of the apostles actually enhances our trust in the veracity of the testimony of Scripture. You see, these men were tasked with preaching the gospel of salvation by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And yet, they themselves have to admit that they lacked faith at the outset. The resurrection is hard enough to get people to buy into, even if it is true and verifiable within the generation that they lived, that Jesus rose from the grave and appeared to hundreds of people. It's hard enough to get people to buy into if you can prove it. If it isn't true that the resurrection was understood to be plausible within their generation, then you're looking at an impossible scenario. To start a, a world-changing, time-transcending religious movement with a message that tells people, you must believe. I, I followed him and it changed my life. Then I kind of didn't believe for a little while. But, but I believed again once he made it undeniable to me. So, so you should believe too. Even though you shouldn't really expect that he's going to make it undeniable to you in the same way that he did to me. No, let's get real. That message wouldn't change a neighborhood block, much less the world. That is, unless it proved to be verifiable in the generation in which it happened. And that's exactly what we find of the biblical testimony of the resurrection. In conclusion this morning, I'd like for us to, to meditate on some, some points of application that this text draws out for us. To those here who, who've not yet believed the testimony of Scripture, I, I said at the beginning of the sermon that part of the goal 
this morning was to, to show that the claims of Scripture concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus are far from irrational. That they're in fact true and probable. And with what's been set before you this morning, I would simply ask you if that's you. What, what more evidence do you need? These are the best objections that scholarship has to offer concerning the death and resurrection. Yet, they seem far less probable than the testimony of the Scriptures themselves. If Jesus really did rise from the grave, which all the biblical and historical data support, then there can be no other conclusion, friend, that He really is the Lord of life and the God of the universe. The only rational reason that one could come to is that a persistence in unbelief is not the consequence of a lack of evidence. Rather, it's, it's the consequence of a hard heart that refuses to submit to God's rightful claim on your life. Friend, hear the call of the Holy Spirit this morning to turn from your rebellion against God. Do as the Scriptures command you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and believe this morning that you too might experience the resurrection to eternal life, friend. To the believer that's asking what relevance this has to their life, the answers to that are... Numerous. You know, I'm not an old pastor. I haven't sat at the deathbed of a great swath of old saints. But I've sat by several. several, And I can tell you that from what little experience I have, that the certainty of the resurrection is no small concern when you come to that final hour. It's all too natural for even the most faithful saints when they come to that moment of trial never before experienced to be riddled with questions about their eternal security. Those questions may vary from unconfessed sin to instances of failed faith throughout life to the certainty of their resurrection to eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. And the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus is no small thing in these moments. Remember, our faith is significant, not primarily in proportion to the strength with which we hold it in moments of trial. God is pleased to accept, the, to, to, to accept and work through even the weakest measure of genuine faith. Our faith is primarily significant in proportion to the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, certainty concerning His resurrection from the dead is the starting point, the foundation of certainty concerning our resurrection from the dead. What's not true of our representative before God Almighty can't be true of us. But what is true of our representative before God is true of us. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 of the Christian, your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
the matter of certainty concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't solve all of the issues that one faces in that hour. But it is a vital element of comfort. Now one may ask, are you saying that my deathbed is when all of this becomes relevant to me? Well, no. It has a particular application there. But the, the implications of the certainty of the resurrection, the implications rather are, are many for faithful Christian living. In his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Martin Luther penned the lyrics, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And that is the anthem of a faithful Christian life that's lived in surrender to God. When he says, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, that's an acceptance of the fact that there may be great suffering in this life as a consequence to faithful obedience to God. But the worst that they can do is take your life. Yet God's truth that abideth, Luther says, is that we'll be resurrected, friends, to a new life. A life that the Bible says is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Because His kingdom is forever. So far from just a deathbed comfort, brothers and sisters, the certainty of the resurrection strengthens us to endure whatever trials and assaults may come from the world. And it strengthens us to live in a faithful, confident obedience to our Lord. And that church is what a faithful response to this text consists of. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank You this morning for such a clear testimony of the reality of the resurrection. Lord God, we thank You that it has been preserved for us to this day. And Lord, we thank You that You have made it a reasonable thing to consider. Lord, we don't trust in reason alone. And we ask that You would help increase our faith as we think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Lord, that You would strengthen us by faith this morning. That in considering it, God, help us to live in obedience to You no matter the cost. As we look not to this earth as our final home, but that city which has You as its founder and builder. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.